Well, hello there. This is Dr. Tribulate with the Glial Goddess podcast, and today I've invited a well-respected integrative specialist and educator, Dr. Jenny Bennett, to speak about the relationship between the microbiome and multiple sclerosis. Dr. Bennett is the founder of Aria Integrative Medicine, which is an integrative clinic in Seattle, Washington, and she has a clinical focus in treating autoimmune conditions, specifically MS, Hashimoto's, Gray's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, and lupus. I'm excited to be discussing this topic with her because she is such a great teacher, and I think you guys will gain a lot of great pearls from her. Before we begin, I want to share a thought-provoking quote. This is one of my favorite creators, Albert Einstein's quote, and it is, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Bennett. Hi. Thanks, Ashley. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. <laughs> this is great. Very cool to have you here. Yeah, that's awesome. So today, let's get started with talking about what MS is and who is at risk. Yeah, absolutely. So with MS, as I'm sure you know, you know, and a lot of your listeners will probably know, MS is an autoimmune demyelinating condition, right? So we have an immune system process that comes in and attacks the myelin around a nerve, and it causes damage. And when that happens, it reduces the ability of the nerve to conduct any kind of electrical signals. So that causes a lot of problems you know, for a lot of people when you can't have the nervous system do what it needs to do. And, and it does everything. So it goes to every place in our body. And that that creates a maraud of different symptoms from muscle pain, weakness, organ failure, uh, all sorts of things that can happen. So yeah, so basically that's kind of what MS is and how it sort of happens, but it's very, very complex, very, very complex autoimmune disease that is sometimes difficult for even the smartest scientists to understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what population is generally at risk of this? Well, while we don't really know like what causes MS, I mean, mm. we can pinpoint certain risk factors. So we do know like any autoimmune disease, we always have a genetic component to it. And that genetic component can be, you know, the genetic component is only part of how someone can develop an autoimmune disease. It doesn't mean that they're going to develop the autoimmune disease because you need the environmental risk factors on top of that to cause the immune system to flare. You know, the genetic component in MS is not like, you know, you have someone with MS or they pass a gene to you like you're your mother or your father or your grandparent or something like that. It's more that genetics can pass on a series of signaling that may or may not work incorrectly. And then when you stack that on top of other things that you come into contact with, with your, you know, throughout the course of your life, it can increase your risk of developing it over time. But it's never set in stone and it's never for certain. But some of the other environmental risk factors, things that we know, you know, women tend to be way more affected than men. And we think that there's a hormonal component to this for obvious reasons, different, you know, hormonal differences between men and women, differences with estrogen and, and progesterone changes. We have environmental impacts, things like we know that MS often occurs in people who live farther away from the equator or in higher latitudes. There are some people think that there's a vitamin D component to that, that, you know, if you live farther from the equator, you get less vitamin D. And if you have low levels of vitamin D, then that might contribute to developing MS because vitamin D does a lot of different things. But there's not really a lot of evidence to suggest that giving vitamin D makes a huge difference for people. But we do know that if people move to someplace for the age of like 15 or 16 and they're closer to the equator, then that decreases their risk overall. Mm-hmm. And then we have other kinds of lifestyle type triggers, things like smoking and drinking, of course, increase your risk. Uh, we know that obesity or people who, who have increased weight may also increase your risk a little bit. And then we have like other types of infectious triggers. And this is true for all autoimmune diseases. So anytime you have something that comes in like a virus or bacteria, Mm -hmm. then it can trigger the immune system. And that immune system can have that autoimmune response, whether it's MS or Hashimoto's or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever. The infectious component makes the immune system respond inappropriately in other places. Okay. So this actually brings up a good question that I have. So in regards to the hormonal component, can you speak a little bit more to what you know about that? Like, is there changes in estrogen or progesterone 
yeah. that can predispose women, like estrogen dominance or maybe deficiency? Yeah. Now we haven't really attributed any direct connection, but we do know some very important things about hormones and the like, especially reproductive hormones and the way they interact with the immune system. So estrogen in and of itself is pro-inflammatory. So when estrogen levels are high, they will stimulate the immune system to promote inflammation. And there's a number of reasons for why this needs to happen, but it's important because it will fight infection and things like that. Mm -hmm. Progesterone, on the other hand, is anti-inflammatory. So when progesterone levels are high, it reduces the immune system. And this is important for a lot of reasons too, because if, you know, progesterone is usually high when a woman is pregnant and you don't want the immune system to be flaring when a woman has a baby inside because it can cause complications for the baby. And so progesterone will oftentimes reduce overall inflammation. So we will see these kind of characteristics where, you know, yeah, we call it estrogen dominance, but it's really just an imbalance in the estrogen progesterone levels. So if women are producing higher levels of estrogen and lower levels of progesterone, and they have an imbalance in that regard, then sometimes it can cause a more pro-inflammatory state. Hormones are considered what we call adjuvants to the immune system. So they don't cause the autoimmune process to happen. Mm -hmm. They either ramp it up or ramp it down. They kind of, they're the things that, you know, make it bigger or make it smaller, but it has to be happening to begin with. So if you have kind of environmental triggers that are causing the immune system to flare and then say you have more estrogen than you have progesterone, it will make that reaction so much stronger Mm -hmm. to begin with. And there's like, I don't know, a lot of evidence to suggest that certain things like hormone replacement therapy and oral birth control, things that are higher in estrogen than in progesterone over long periods of time will stimulate certain autoimmune diseases. So I think there's a, a, while we can't say, oh, there's this direct correlation with autoimmune diseases and, and increase in certain hormones, we do know that there are some pretty good, you know, connections that we have so far. Yeah, this stuff is fascinating. You know, I see this, I do work with a little bit of autoimmunity in my clinical practice too. And, you know, I work with a lot more of the bioidenticals, but I've noticed with certain conditions, so like I see psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, especially in elderly women, I've noticed their flares increase when they're more in the perimenopausal or postmenopausal period in rheumatoid arthritis. I know that's probably specific to the uh, condition with rheumatoid arthritis, but have you noticed that too? Like, oh, 100%. Yeah. And the theory is kind of this like, you know, when women go into menopause, their estrogen levels tank, and that's kind of the characteristic. That's why you get the hot flashes and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, all those fun symptoms that we get. But the theory is really that when women go into menopause, it's not the drop in estrogen that makes the autoimmune disease worse, but it's the lack of progesterone. Mm-hmm. Because when women go into menopause, they don't make any progesterone at all because they're not ovulating anymore. It's the ovulation that makes the progesterone. And so when women go into menopause, their estrogen levels drop, but they don't drop to zero like progesterone does. Women are still making estrogen mainly via fat cells. So if the estrogen level drops, but it doesn't drop all the way, and then the progesterone level drops to zero, then you have a really strong estrogen-progesterone imbalance because you're still making estrogen. Mm. You're not making any progesterone. Mm -hmm. And it's that shift away from the low progesterone levels that actually causes more inflammation going into the menopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal state. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Bennett, for sharing this. I think this is a a nuance that a lot of people don't talk about, like this hormone component in the connection between the autoimmunity. And it just expresses how important looking at the whole system is um, complex conditions. So I know we're kind of diverted a little bit talking about the broader <laughs> autoimmune yeah. stuff. And there's, there's so many topics around this. Stuff. It's like I get talk for hours about any of this stuff. <laughs> That's why I invited you because you're just yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let me speak more about the gut and the microbiome and how it plays into this broader concept of autoimmune expression. Can we kind of start to talk about that and then how it weaves into multiple sclerosis? Yeah. So you're asking like, so how autoimmune diseases as a whole kind of will develop? Yeah. In relation to the microbiome. So like, okay. Yeah. The concept of the microbiome. First, yeah. Yeah. Like, 
like what role does that play into yeah autoimmunity okay yeah oh this is yeah this is great this is such a big topic and that's why we were going to talk about this because it's like we again we could talk for hours just about microbiome we could talk for hours about hormones too whatever (laughs) whatever whatever works for you (laughs) okay the microbiome is super important actually the gut let's just talk about the intestines as a whole that are super super important it's interesting because people will often come to me a lot of times for things like ms and and uh, rheumatologic condition you know rheumatoid arthritis lupus and i'm like okay let's talk about your gi tract and we're like well there's nothing wrong with my GI tract, I'm like, but we have to talk about it because it's part of everything that's going on. But there's such a huge connection between them because 80% of our immune system resides in our GI tract. And and that's the important piece here. And there's a reason for why 80% of our immune system resides in the GI tract. And that's because we have so many things coming into our GI tract on a regular basis. I mean, the foods that we're eating, the saliva that we're swallowing, all the different microorganisms that are coming in. I mean, we're breathing stuff in and that's getting part of our mucus and that goes into our GI tract. There's so many things that get into the GI tract that the immune system has to react to. And it's constantly having to decide, you know, is this thing pathogenic or is this thing normal? Is this food? Is this drink? Is this, you know, what is this and where does it have to go? And do we need to do something about it or can it just like exist and, you know, play its role? So the immune system is kind of like the gatekeeper of the GI tract. And the the microbiome sort of sits inside the GI tract. So the microbiome, when when we say that means all of the bacteria and yeast and some, there's some viruses in our GI tract, not usually not bad ones, but any kind of microorganism that's living there commensally, well, or in symbiosis or not, they're there just like on our skin, we have bacteria and fungus. They're just hanging out in the GI tract too. Mm-hmm. And most of them are really good for us. Most of the bacteria and the fungus and our GI tract are really, really good for us, and we need it because while our stomach and our pancreas do a really good job of breaking food down, mm-hmm. it's really the bacteria and the the fungus and the GI tract that helps break things down even further oh. so that we can absorb them better into our system. So that's one of the big roles they play. What we're starting to learn now is that the microbiome in our GI tract also sends signals to the immune system. So we have a barrier in our GI tract that is the intestinal lining. And it's like, there's a lot of things there. It's like a mucus barrier and a cell barrier. And, you know, there's a lot of layers in between. I like to tell people it's kind of like a wall. And on one side sits the bacteria and the the fungus, and on the other side sits the immune system. And then things kind of go in and out of that wall through doors, small doors, or whatever we call them gap junctions, but (laughs) they're like little doors in the wall and the things will go inside and the immune system will kind of decide what it, you know, wants to do with those things. But the bacteria, while it breaks stuff up, the good bacteria will actually send signals across the wall to the immune system that says, hey, there is something pathogenic, you need to increase inflammation, or there's not anything pathogenic, you need to reduce inflammation. Yeah. So it will not just break stuff down for us, but it also produces this kind of communication with our own immune system to help increase or decrease inflammation depending on what's going on inside that intestinal lining. So this is going to be the problem, Ashley. I'm going to like diverge into like a bunch of different things because I will It's okay. I'll keep you on track. We'll keep you on track. Okay. So <laughs> this is the a lot of people will get this in the layman's terms, right? We you yeah. can do job at this. So yeah. So So the the immune system is important. The GI tract is important. And the microbiome is important in helping control the way the immune system functions in regards to that part. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with autoimmune diseases is that if the immune system becomes overstimulated, specifically in the GI tract, it will lead to inflammation elsewhere in the body. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of different theories for this, things like molecular mimicry, where you know there are some proteins that mimic bad things and the immune system calls them bad and or thinks they're bad and then will go and find them elsewhere in the body and destroy them. Mm-hmm. If they're our own tissue, then that causes autoimmune disease. But the bacteria portion of it, if there are too much bad bacteria or too much bad yeast or other type of fungal organisms, it can potentially send signals to the immune system to ramp up that inflammatory response Mm -hmm. and cause problems elsewhere in the body. Now, 
the other big problem with imbalanced microbiome is if it causes damage to that GI lining or that kind of wall or barrier in between the immune system and the rest of the lumen of the stomach or not stomach, the small intestine. So (laughs) if there's any kind of damage to that wall, if the barrier is gone and we call this like leaky gut, if the barrier is gone, then the immune system will just start reacting to everything because it's lost its barrier. And now it's coming into contact with things that it never came into contact with before. So it would look at like food that's undigested and say, oh my God, what is this like big undigested food particle? It never saw it before because the wall was there. Mm -hmm. But now it's looking at things that it never looked at before and it it freaks out and it will cause other inflammatory processes to happen elsewhere in the body. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it will... It kind of depends on how well the bacteria is balanced and the fungus is balanced and then how much damage there is to that lining overall to help regulate the immune system response, just for autoimmune diseases in general. There are a lot of things that go with that, but if we're just talking about autoimmune diseases, we need to regulate that immune system process. Yeah. So we have our first responders that's in our GI tract and those are a big, they play a big role in the mediation of this response and how, would you say how big it is, how big it can get in terms of um, like, you know, there's in rheumatology, there's flares that can be big or small, like where there's more Mm -hmm. progression of the disease versus a little less progression. Does that correlate, do you think? Where there's a lot more barrier disruption, there is a, in a bigger inflammatory response, which correlates to possibly more of a more fulminant expression of the disease. And that's a big and question. It's a big question, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to see if I, I, I can try to break it down. So we can tie this to something like relapsing or emitting MS actually pretty easily. Yeah. So most autoimmune diseases are triggered by what we call the adaptive immune system. So Mm -hmm. this is like the second responders, long-term inflammatory mediators. These are things like T cells and B cells. Mm -hmm. Now, most autoimmune diseases are caused by damage from certain T cells. So Mm -hmm. they're the cells that come in and they kind of decide what needs to be damaged and what doesn't, and then they just make it happen. And with MS in particular, we know very well that it's a T cell mediated response. It's why we can't measure antibodies in the blood to see if there's MS because there are certain cell signaling that's happening that causes T cells to ramp up and then to ramp down. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not T cells ramp up or ramp down is based on the signals that they get from the rest of the immune system. Now, this is generally from the um, what we call the first responders of the innate immune system. So those are the ones that you're referring to that kind of sit in the gut, right? That, yeah. that sit there and they're the gatekeepers that respond to everything coming in and out of the GI tract. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell the T cells what they need to be doing. So whether or not what they tell the T cells is sort of determined based off of the quantity and the frequency and the duration with which they're exposed to anything pathogenic, right? So so you have an infection and there's some type of bacteria that's causing your immune system to flare. Mm -hmm. It will cause, if it's only there for a short period of time, maybe like a couple of days, then the innate immune system will tell the T cells, hey, you need to ramp up. But once that signal goes away, the immune system will sort of ramp back down. And this is where we see things like all autoimmune diseases or, you know, especially things like relapsing, remitting MS, Mm -hmm. where you'll see the flare sort of ramp up and then it ramps back down and then it ramps up and it ramps back down. But that's based off of the frequency, duration, and severity with which whatever trigger is causing that T-cell response to increase and decrease over time sticks around. Yeah. And very well. This is yeah. excellent. <laughs> yeah. And it can be, you know, it really, really very depends. And it's not always like one thing. We can't just say, mm-hmm. oh, it's this one bacteria or it's like this one food or it's this one, like it's, it's a, always a combination of things. Kind of like how I usually like to describe it to people is that the immune system is reacting constantly to things on a regular basis. It's going up and down every single day. Every time we drink something, every time we eat something, all the air that we breathe and the stuff that's floating around that could get into our nasal passages or whatever, all of those things we're reacting to on a regular basis. 
and the immune system is constantly responding to them all the time. Whether or not we produce symptoms or whether or not there's damage is based off of kind of an immune system threshold. So the immune system will ramp up and down daily, but unless it gets up to that threshold, that kind of tipping point, mm-hmm. we won't actually know that there's anything going wrong until it gets there. And then we start having symptoms. And then once it falls below that threshold, the symptoms go away. But the immune system is always kind of responding on a regular basis. And our goal is to try to get the immune system response down lower than that threshold so that the environmental triggers aren't don't really matter in a way that causes symptoms to occur. And we do this in, with a number of different modalities with conventional medicine. Our goal is to give immunosuppressants that just knock it down below that threshold. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always knock it down below the threshold. You can still be on an immunosuppressant and maybe it, it drops you close to the threshold, but you're still having symptoms or your disease is still progressing. So it's, you know, which is very interesting because it makes you think about like what other triggers are playing into this that are not being addressed. Like for example, if we're affecting the immune system, is the viral titer going to go up? Is And is that playing into the mechanisms behind some of these T cell responses in, in this condition? You know, it just, it's bringing a lot of curiosity. Oh yeah. I mean, it opens up a lot of doors that of things that we need to start exploring more. And, you know, we have these models that say that we have to kind of pinpoint, you know, it's either one thing or it's this other thing, but it's, it's really a combination of all the things that our bodies are dynamic beings and, and we have to take into consideration all the things that, that are coming in together as a whole and not just isolate one or two things. It's never just food. It's never just an infection. I mean, maybe like on the off chance, there's like one or two people that, that have that like one thing that really makes a difference. But for the general population, when they develop these types of conditions, it's a culmination of a bunch of things. Right. All at once. Right. This stuff is so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It is very fascinating. I know this actually brings up another question I have about the broad groups of phyla that we put the microbiome in. Mm -hmm. Do we have a different, um, does the MS population have a different amount of microorganisms that we know of or contributors in the microbiome that produce or correlated to some of the flares? Yeah, you know, there's so much different research coming out around this. There's actually a lot of really good research that has been coming out in the last 10 years in regards to how MS reacts to the microbiome in regards to how certain combinations of different phyla will work together, but it's not very clear as to like what what is like the best combination for someone. That's really hard to say. And I think most of the studies will show that getting a wide variety or diverse commensal bacteria actually works better. Okay. At least that we know of. But, you know, a lot of the studies will show that, okay, if you take someone who has MS symptoms or if you take, you know, most of the studies actually are based around rats or mice that have this like encephalitis that's similar to MS. Right. And they say, okay, well, what is the microbiome of these patients? What does it look like when they're flaring? And then it, you, what, what they usually find is that there's a higher propensity towards certain pathogenic types of bacteria, uh, whether that's, you know, Clostridium or Salmonella or something like that. Campylobacter. And then Campylobacter, yeah. And then they wipe it out. So they give them like tons of antibiotics. Mm. And usually oral antibiotics, because that's what kills it in the GI tract. And then a ton of the symptoms clear up. Mm. A lot of the symptoms clear up because they wiped all of that pathogenic bacteria out. Now, there are some studies that show that giving certain types of bacteria, like bifido strains, some studies with lactobacillus, but a lot of studies with bifido and bacterioides fragilis, Mm -hmm. they put those in with the rest of the commensal bacteria and they see more symptom improvement over time. Mm -hmm. But there's so many other factors that are playing a role in all that. So it's really hard to say it's these specific types that are really making a big difference. And it's kind of interesting because if we look at some of the current types of bacteria they all do different things. So initially we used to give people like tons of lactobacillus and bifido strains. I mean, still think that we do that. In probiotics. In probiotics, yeah. 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 
And we could say, well, we know that like these types of strains are good for patients with autoimmune diseases because we know that they have better cell signaling to the T cells and the dendritic cells in the gut. So we give people a ton of these things and we see it reduce inflammation because we know that it has better cell signaling. But there's lots of problems with this because, you know, if we eat probiotics, they a lot of them get killed in our stomach as they go through the digestive process, need doses, and even that doesn't really create like a huge benefit that we necessarily see. Mm-hmm. But then we have other types of strains that we know, which are like those spore probiotics, right? right. And we do see some benefit in those with people with autoimmunity because instead of cell signaling, what those types of bacteria do is they actually heal the GI lining. And they're thought to have like better resistance against our, our stomach acid as they go through the digestive system. So they can kind of last a little bit better as they get into the small intestine, which is where they have to go to work, do their job. Mm-hmm. But those types, and, and in particular to MS, there's not really a lot of good studies to suggest that. But I would say if we can make correlations between people who have MS and problems with you know, damage to the small intestinal lining, or we have these barrier issues or leaky gut or whatever we want to call it. And then we give people probiotics that are like spore probiotics that help heal the GI lining faster Then the chances of them helping something like MS is going to be much higher, theoretically. Okay. And do you use that in your clinical experience? Do you use spore-based organisms? Yeah, I've started using them more recently. They kind of became really popular in the last... Right. year. I think they're getting more and more perfected. I've, I've started switching over. So what I actually like to do is a combination of all of the, I think that we limit our ability to use probiotics when we just stick to like one or the other. So if we say, say we take some strains that are lactobacillus and bifido, which is like the common ones, and that helps reduce cell signaling, mm-hmm. like in the T cells. Mm-hmm. And then we combine that with the spore probiotics that that help to heal the GI lining. Then you have a double combination that you can use that I think is going to provide more benefit to people. And then you can add in things like beneficial yeasts, like Saccharomyces boulardii, which is like as beneficial, if not more so, than some of the other lactobacillus bacteria strains mm-hmm. that can help reduce inflammation via antioxidant effects in the GI lining, which is kind of cool too. And I see pretty good benefit with that as well. Yeah. These things bring up this idea of timing though. Like, you know, with yeast, I know they can be triggers for other autoimmune conditions, right? So do you time when you introduce yeast organisms? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. You know, I, yes, I try to time them. It kind of depends on the person. Some people have really, when they have really strong reactions to yeast, I mean, you can kind of tell right, relatively quickly. They don't, they don't not feel good. Um, and, <laughs> I'm uh, one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people will be like, what is this thing you gave me? I'm feeling terrible. And so I will usually bring it in separately. So if I bring in the different types of probiotics, I've had people respond very poorly to lactobacillus strains too. So if you bring them in one at a time, you'll kind of know. So you can do generally you know, a regular probiotic strain with like lactobacillus or bifido and do that for a couple of weeks. And then if that doesn't cause any problems, you add the spore probiotics in for a couple of weeks. And if that doesn't cause any problems, then you can add the Saccharomyces in for a couple of weeks and just see how someone does. If they're fine with all those things, then you just combine them all together and have them do them regularly. And then do you use any sort of dietary like prebiotics that you, you know, protocols? That yeah. you, like? <laughs> you know, to be honest, I don't use a lot of prebiotics. They're really good ideas. That's a really good idea to use them. But my focus is more to of it from a dietary standpoint. Like food, food, food. Like food, food. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. like actual food. That's yeah. kind of what I meant. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, yeah, you have to, the prebiotic part is important, you know, getting in, all prebiotics are are certain types of fiber that Mm -hmm. feed the probiotic. Mm -hmm. So if you have like a healthy diet in place that brings in a lot of digestible fibers or soluble types of fibers, you'll feed the probiotics fine. And that in general works a lot 
better for most people. So mm-hmm. figuring out there's always a dietary, there's a small dietary component as well. That's like, you always have to assess whether or not there are certain types of foods that could be affecting the autoimmune process, which happens fairly regularly. It's more so in certain conditions than others. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you remove certain inflammatory foods and then you focus on diets that are high in, you know, fermentable types of carbohydrates mm. or complex carbohydrates or high fiber vegetables and fruits and things like that, then you will get a much bigger benefit from adding in any additional probiotics on top of that. Because yeah, probiotics need sugar to eat. And so we can do like, you, you want to reduce refined sugars and carbohydrates, things like that, but you don't want to avoid them completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of nuances in this. It's not of, just yeah. basic this diet, but <laughs> so important. Um, oh my God. I wish it was like black and white. Cause then I'd be a millionaire. I could just be like, you just do like these two things and you'll be cured forever. But yeah, that's not how it not works. not that simple. <laughs> no, especially with autoimmune conditions. Once the process is going, there's a lot of, a lot of tricks up your sleeve. You have to, and a lot of things to consider here. Yeah, there's a lot of things. When you introduce a a toxic drug, which is necessary at times, that changes the microbiome as well. I mean, most of these things change everything else in the body. So it's just really fascinating. Absolutely. Okay. So this concept of dysbiosis and eubiosis, so bacteria being out of balance versus being in balance, where do you see that fit in the, the course of MS? Does it get worse over time if it's not managed or... That's a very good question. I don't know that we that we actually know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I would say that just like all autoimmune diseases, it's over the course of a lifetime. Right. The balance of your microbiome starts the day that you're born. Mm-hmm. And what happens from there on out can change everything in relationship to your microbiome. So if you're born as a vaginal birth, then chances are good that your microbiome is going to be a lot stronger because the more time that your head spends in the vaginal canal, the more likely it is to start off with a lot better bacteria and a lot more Mm -hmm. diversity, assuming that, that the mother also has good bacterial diversity. We do know that when children are born via C-section, because there's a combination of of not being able to go through the vaginal canal in combination with the fact that most C-sections are given antibiotics because it's part of the surgery. If that happens, then it will wipe the baby's GI flora out. And then you're kind of starting at a not very great place from that moment. Well, and the hospital exposure to the organisms there is that's what's exactly. system. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of starts from day one. Now, as far as how that correlates with the progression of, of things like MS or even all autoimmune diseases, it's so, it's so hard to say because the microbiome is only one factor in the entire environmental triggers that you can get with autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. So for some people, it can be a really huge thing. For some people, you know, we can say, well, if from day one, you're born and you don't have very good microbiome, and then you progress throughout your years and maybe you're sick with like other things, you know, you'll see often kids who have chronic ear infections get put on a lot of antibiotics or they have tonsillitis or they, you start seeing these kind of immune system things pop up and they're just given Fortunately, we're not really doing that much anymore, but you still see it commonly where where kids will be put on a lot of antibiotics through the course of their life. And their microbiome never gets a chance to sort of pick up and become very balanced or diverse in the ways it needs to be. And then there are some theories that say, well, okay, maybe certain types of conditions, maybe like, you know, primary progressive MS might start a little bit earlier if these things are happening early on, but it depends on so many different factors mm-hmm. that it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly when exactly is this necessary. We do know that generally if the microbiome is not sort of set up in the ways it needs to by the ages of 15, 16 or so, then your immune system is at way greater risk of sort of ramping up towards that autoimmune response. Over the next 10 to 20 years. So when you say it's not in a stable place, does that mean like it's 
diverse, it's been exposed, it's adapted, it's got a good, like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> well, mostly it's that you just have a really good balance of different types of GI flora. Mm-hmm. Because you, the, the the GI lining generally doesn't get damaged right away in kids. And also, you know, kids and young adults, they heal stupidly fast. And so yeah. when there's any damage, even if there is damage to the immune system early on, chances are good it will heal much quicker. But then as they get older, it's not really going to heal. So if you don't have, say you're born... A VSC section and you have a lot of antibiotics and it kind of wipes out your GI flora. But then maybe by like age 10 or so, you're doing okay and you have a family that feeds you healthy vegetables and foods and you have low stress in your life and you know there's all these other factors <laughs> you have this like magical <laughs> life that not exist I, anymore <laughs> I don't know I never had it so I, I'm assuming that it has to exist somewhere so <laughs> but but you know in theory in theory that can happen it's coming back it's coming I know it's gonna teach us something I know. I'd like to think that, you know, my, my son will have that life, although... Oh, I'm sure you're giving it to him. You're great. Yeah. You know, he, he eats figs instead of cookies. So I guess... That's, that's a, right. That's, that's right. A, that's a plus. <laughs> but yeah, it's... Uh, it kind of depends. And then, and then if you have all the other right factors in place, they'll, they'll bounce back real fast. And it's generally not anything that's going to be this kind of long-lasting sort of scenario. But once we get to like the ages of 16, 17 or so, we have to sort of backtrack. We've we've now gotten to a place where anything that happens from then on out is most likely going to take a lot of extra work to go backwards. And depending on other environmental factors or even like hormone imbalances and whether or not you're exposed to things like EBV or mono or like whatever is happening in your lifetime, from there on out, will sort of determine how bad each of those conditions will be. And everybody's a little bit different. Wow. So how much of your population are you seeing these days that are MS patients, are people that have MS? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, most of the patients I see are uh, rheumatology patients. So, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, Sjogren's, psoriatic okay. arthritis. Okay. I'd say approximately, you know, five to 10% of the patients I see will have MS. Um, it's hard. I think, you know, I've worked, I work very closely with the MS Society and I do a lot of education through their, the, the, at least in the Northwest chapter here. It's kind of interesting. I, I sometimes, wonder if the education for patients who have MS is sort of this like doom and gloom scenario that's you you get MS and you it's going to be dis downhill forever from here Mm -hmm. on out and the patients that I've interacted with who have had MS just have a very they have a hard time thinking that anything good could ever come for them in the rest of their life which is sad. I wonder if that's because of some of the cognitive components since it's a central nervous system mediated autoimmune condition, how much of that is actually affecting their decisional capacity and understanding stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good thought. And, you know, I think a portion of it probably. Yeah. I mean, cause there's the, the high, high uh, incidence of depression, yep. which plays into their intrinsic motivation, their perception, more pessimism, more beliefs, you know, it's, it's kind of sad, but so out of the people you see, do you see any primary progressive? I think I have like exactly two primary progressive <laughs> MS patients. Mm-hmm. Um, not very many. Mm-hmm. Most a- of them, what? most of them are secondary progressive or relapsing remitting. Okay. Yeah. Which do you feel that's the area that your style of medicine really can help? Yeah. I think that people who have relapsing remitting and secondary progressive are more optimistic that things could go in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Primary progressive is so tough. It's, you know, there are, I mean, not even the general DMTs that are used for relapsing remitting and secondary progressive can sometimes even touch primary progressive. And so, you know, it's really, really hard even from in, an alternative or conventional or even like a functional perspective to treat patients with primary progressive because it's happening so fast and it's like very linearly in one direction. Mm-hmm. And I will say though that the of the two primary progressive patients I have, they're stable for the most part. That's and good. that's always a good thing. So yeah. preventing any future damage is just as good as trying to 
increase any reversal of any damage to the myelin. Okay. And how much of that approach that you're taking integrates the microbiome? Okay. So let's talk more about the relapse remitting population you work with. Mm -hmm. Do you try to, like, where's your goal with that population? Well, so my goal with, I mean, it's the same as my goal with any autoimmune patient because I treat that they're all very similar. I mean, not similar for obvious reasons that the diseases are very, very different. And there are things that you need to prevent in certain conditions to, to keep bad things, very bad things from happening. But for all the patients that come in to see me, I try to do sort of like a comprehensive systematic checking of the different areas that I think are more likely to affect people. So say that if a woman comes in and she has relapsing remitting MS, I'm going to do like a thorough history of what her hormones are looking like, because I want to know, you know, have there been issues with her periods in the past? Has she been on oral birth control? Like, are there, you know, like what other contributing factors could there potentially be there? And then I'll do a whole comprehensive GI approach and I'll say, okay, what is the likelihood of there being dysbiosis? What is the likelihood of there being leaky gut? Like, what is the likelihood given some of the symptoms of there being certain food triggers or allergies, which we didn't really talk much about, but I mean, there's not a ton of correlations between certain food allergies, but food allergies can cause damage to the GI lining, which can perpetuate any inflammation anyway. So that needs to be assessed. And then I'll look, you know, for other types of exposures, like other viral exposures or bacterial exposures or parasitic ones, you know, people who travel a lot, things like that. And then I will try to do some other kind of environmental type of assessment to see if there's like heavy metal issues or toxic types of inflammatory triggers, because that can be a big one. Right. So yeah, I kind of do all of those things. And I would say, you know, MS and relapsing remitting MS and even a majority of the autoimmune conditions that I see. I would probably say somewhere around 60 to 70% of them do have some kind of issue with the GI microbiome. So that's a common place that I start. It's also fairly easy to modify to see good results, right? And sometimes you start with the easy things first so people can get, you know, wins early on, which even if things don't are completely resolved, at least they get a little bit of a win. So things like changing someone's diet. I mean, while people like don't really like taking gluten out of their diet, it is way easier to remove gluten from your diet than it is to try to like make your estrogen or your adrenal gland produce the hormones that it needs to produce. So if those things make a difference, then we do those things initially. You know, helping giving someone probiotics or trying to use certain antimicrobials to change their flora and then add in good flora to make it more balanced is, it can be a long process, but it's a fairly simple one. Okay. So the microbiome is something you see in a lot of your autoimmune population that needs some some support. Would you say that the people that you are bringing into practice are pretty competent around diet or do they need a lot more help? Well, <laughs> I mean, I live, <laughs> I live in Seattle. So most, <laughs> I feel like I live in a little bit of a bubble where, right. you know, most of the people who come in are fairly competent. I mean, they know, I get a lot of people who come in and say, look, I know that you're going to tell me I need to change my diet. And, um, I think I'm ready, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you know, people are fairly aware that diet can play a, a pretty, pretty big role, and they're, and they're pretty good about it. But everybody's different, and even though we live in a little bit of a bubble up here, like I grew up in a very rural area in California, so I'm very aware that like people don't know how to. They aren't very much aware of like the different ways in which food happens. I mean, I I grew up in a family that like thinks that it's super healthy to you know eat frozen burritos every day. (laughs) I know. And we get into these these, uh, belief systems that actually trigger, I think, a lot of a sympathetic response and fear, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, that can be a pro-inflammatory reaction. So it's like, where where do you have that calm conversation, right? Oh, it can. Yeah. And you know, it's funny too. Those are lectin bombs, by the way. I know. I know. Oh, yeah. Burritos. It's like dairy is a huge problem, especially for like my family member. Well, all my family members have some form of autoimmune disease and I'm always like, you can't stop eating dairy. And they're just like, (laughs) never. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But, uh, 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting too. Like I have a lot of conversations with people around co- drinking coffee, especially here in Seattle. It's that one's always a hard conversation to have. Oh, yeah, here I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, co- having conversations with people about, co- you know, people will straight up say to me, I know that when I don't drink coffee, I feel better, but I'm not going to stop drinking coffee. <laughs> and so you just got to work, you got to work around those things, right. those types of things. Yeah. 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 You don't want to take away the only thing people really enjoy in their mm-hmm. life, which is uh, a lot of times the things that we ingest on a regular basis. Yeah. So it's definitely not an all or nothing thing. So that's why I'm, you know, I'm glad that I've worked with Dr. Bennett and I know she's very sensitive and realistic and she has a really great approach of where to start. Cause there's a lot of factors that we discussed in this and it's not just like going all in on something and belief changing, right? It's, it's little goals, right? Little shifts. Yeah. And we are all, I mean, we're dynamic beings, right? So it's like, the again, the immune system is a f- constant fluctuating thing. So it's never one thing. It's never eliminating the one food or the coffee or changing the microbiome. It's a combination of things that we have to do over time that really make the biggest difference. And you can find leeway in certain things. You know, if you know that something is pro-inflammatory, you can find other things that are also pro-inflammatory, bring those down that will help over time. Mm-hmm. It, there's, it's all about balance. Everything is about balance. Yeah, this actually brings up something that I've become really interested in because I work in chronic pain, right? And and um, I'm kind of bridging this like um, the emotional connection with the physical connection of chronic pain and how that creates this autonomic response that can be, in my opinion, I think sympathetic is more pro-inflammatory. Would you agree? Sympathetic responses. Yeah. Especially to the gut, right? Because you're not getting as much perfusion there. Yeah. Well, now you're talking about cortisol, which is, um, Uh well, cortisol and serotonin or epinephrine. Yeah. Yeah. All of those things play a huge, huge role, which is not something we really talked about today, but um, the stress component is huge. It's huge. Mm -hmm. It plays a role in the gut. It can damage the lining, but cortisol fluctuations in and of itself also changes the immune system response. And that's huge. So yes, that can play a really big role as well. Right. Yeah. So all these things. It's it's fascinating. It's, I know. It's very, so very complicated. We talked about a lot of things, and I think we covered all the things that I really wanted to talk about. Is there, you know, I want to summarize. So with individuals struggling with an autoimmune disease, where do you think they would benefit from working with an integrative alternative type of provider? Where would you start? Yeah. So my recommendation to everyone, well, especially with MS patients or anyone that has a really severe a chronic autoimmune condition. Um, the goal of working with a, an alternative or functional medicine practitioner is not to, I mean, we consider it, oh, I kind of hate the word alternative because it's not alternative. We're complementary, right? We're complementary. branch of things. Exactly. Yeah. We work in conjunction. The people are going to get the best healthcare they possibly can if they're working with providers that help bring a more comprehensive approach to things. Mm-hmm. My goal is never to take people off their medications or to like promise them magical things that will happen if they just like, you know, started some brand of diet or something like that. My goal is to really look at everything as a whole and say, okay, where is it that we can shore some stuff up? How can we improve this area? How can we get you to do things that are healthy for you, like exercise and stuff like that? Uh, And so any kind of practitioner that works from a functional or or complementary aspect is really just there as an adjunctive type of care to whatever else you're doing via medication. If you're working with a neurologist or a rheumatologist or whoever it is that you're working with, it's to provide education and support so that you can make the best decisions you can have and have someone on your side to do that. Right. And it's a different model. It's it's definitely a more holistic systems approach model to be working with us. And it goes back to the quote I spoke about today. It's that branch of we have to do something different to adapt, you know, in a newer paradigm of care because autoimmunity is a chronic type of condition and it definitely takes and warrants looking at the whole, you know, it's not just one mechanism, one medication. It's not going to be enough to help the person have the best quality of life. So yeah. I love what you're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, well, this is why we this is why we do that. You included, right? We yeah, yeah. We can see these things and help people find kind of ways through our own experiences and through other people's experiences, and uh, we're just we're all partners in this together. <laughs> yes. So, where can we find you? 
Where, <laughs> no, that's a blunt, right? I always love this. Where can we always, find you? I'm always tempted to be like, I'll be, I'll be hiding under a rock. And then, no, I just, well, right now I'm at home because we're all uh, quarantined right now. Yeah, <laughs> we're in Washington uh, right now. So yeah, we're in Washington. So I have a clinic in Seattle, Washington called Aria Integrative Medicine that's mm-hmm. spelled A-R-I-A. You can find us on the interwebs at ariaintegrative.com and that's integrative with a V. So you can also just Google me, Dr. Jenny Bennett, which is, you know, two N's, two T's. And I usually come up if you type in Seattle with it. And so I'm usually there at the clinic. I also teach at Bastyr University a couple quarters a year. And you can probably find me there as well when, when we're not quarantining. <laughs> but yeah, that's where I generally am. Okay, great. And then yeah. anything you want to just summarize or take away from this to give the audience? Yeah. I mean, I always try to encourage people to be as educated as you can and to be proponents for yourself. So if you are working with providers that, you know, something just feels a little bit off, or maybe you just want a little bit extra support or care, do not be afraid to be a proponent for yourself and advocate to say, you know, I want a different opinion or I want someone else's help, or you you need someone to kind of be on your side so that it's not so scary. There are lots of practitioners out there. There are, there are thousands of practitioners, hundreds of thousands of practitioners that can be the type of person that you need to be part of your team. So don't always feel like you have to be stuck with someone. And there are lots of options. Oh, thank you for bringing this up. This brings up such a great point. You know, something I recognized to piggyback on what Dr. Bennett's saying is when I was preceptoring with a rheumatologist in medical school, he was great. He was he was integrated minded, but he didn't have the time to go into educating and, and advocating for his patients around diet. And a lot of them actually didn't understand diet. So it shows the value of this sort of model, especially what Dr. Bennett's doing, is you know, spending more time with you, helping educate you, which we did today, and helping you understand where to start what the safety around this is. And, you know, a lot of this can go into deeper beliefs about ourselves that aren't commonly known to a lot of us. You know, food is one of those things I could see. I've seen a lot of people, especially with a rheumatologist, have, have triggers around them, triggers that weren't even recognized. Like, oh, you know, I eat fine, my food, my diet's fine. But what if it's, what if there are ways that we can help your diet, you know, slowly change you, you know, just being curious about that. But yeah, so anyways, to summarize, this is a great way to work with someone to help entertain these kind of discussions that are a lot more deep yeah, deep and time-consuming. Yeah, and just know you have options, you know? The world is full of options. You don't have to be stuck in in one thing or another. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much, Dr. Bennett. I really appreciate what you had to say today and all of the great information and just your personable personality. <laughs> well, I pre- it's always easy to talk to you. So it's, it makes it for a fun conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the point, right? You can yeah. up and, and just, you know, that, uh, there's a lot of value to this. I believe we talked about a lot of concepts that are deep, but generally explained. And I think it's going to create a lot of advocation for a profession. So yeah, that's awesome. Doing, so thank you. Cool. Absolutely. All right, guys. Cool. Stay tuned. All right.